Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, the start of a special series throughout June, looking at the early years of broadcasting in Hong Kong to mark the 90th anniversary of RTHK, which started out as the call sign GOW in 1928. So if RTHK is 90 years old this year, that makes it two years younger than the BBC and nearly four years younger than the world's most durable DJ, Uncle Ray Cadero. How time flies. I, I, I can't imagine I've been around so long. <laughs> five programmes I'll be tracking the early decades of broadcasting here, looking at what happened to radio here during the Second World War. Mainly we listened to it for the BBC News. That was the main thing. And uh, in particular, uh, on September the 3rd, 1939, it was a Sunday, and uh, we'd been to the pictures in the evening, and when we came home we turned into the news, and that was when we heard that we were at war with, with Germany. I'll also be delving into the archives, hearing about presenters past and present. Well, we left England in 1911, coronation year of uh, King George V and Queen Mary. And playing music and newsreel from the different eras. The one millionth person is being resettled. This is really a fantastic achievement if you stop to think. First, let's go back a bit further. Round the corner from where I'm sitting in the studios at Broadcasting House is Marconi Road, named after an Italian inventor, Guglielmo Marconi, who, with his butler in the late 19th century, turned many experiments being conducted by physicists around the world into wireless signals, building on the work of the German inventor Heinrich Hertz. He continued to demonstrate in the UK and then America, transmitting his technology from ship's masts to get the height. Meanwhile, in Brazil, Catholic priest Father Roberto Landel de Maura had been developing long-distance audio transmissions using a megaphone device, a photophone using light beams and radio signals. It was reported in June 1899 that he had successfully transmitted audio over a distance of seven kilometres. And it may have sounded something like this. Transmitindo de São Paulo na minha experiência em telefonia sem fio. Espero transmitir até uma distância de 7 quilômetros. Well, actually, I cheated there. It was more likely a few bleeps. The actual first human voice to be transmitted is not until 1906, and that was Canadian inventor Reginald Fessenden, who made the first radio audio broadcast from Brant Rock in Massachusetts. Ships at Sea heard a broadcast that included Mr Fessenden playing the violin and reading from the Bible. Marconi's equipment would be used on early ships and for the Titanic's distress signal in 1912. In 
In Hong Kong, the newspapers start reporting on local amateur interest in radio technology from the start of the 1920s. There's also the opposition from some newspapers and wire agencies around the world to this new threat to their revenue. But in Hong Kong, there's discussion of creating a new radio club, as reported in the Hong Kong Telegraph in 1923. But it was all rather serious. There was no fun to be had. Radio club, city hall meeting, broadcasting in Hong Kong. At the city hall last evening, there was a representative gathering present at a meeting convened by the Hong Kong Telegraph to consider the feasibility of forming a Hong Kong radio club. The chair was taken by Mr A. Hicks, editor of the Telegraph. In the course of his opening speech, the chairman said, The object of this meeting, as you are all aware, is to consider the availability of forming a radio club for Hong Kong. And I think you will agree, gentlemen, that the attendance at this meeting provides ample evidence of the widespread interest which is being taken in the subject. If you should decide to start a club here, I should like to express the hope that it will concentrate its activities on research and experimental work, rather than on what might be termed the amusing side of radio. There will, of course, be people to whom radio will appear as a fad, a novelty, or a rather elaborate toy. But for the scientifically minded, there will be much more in it than that. The chief aim of the club, I suggest, should be to help forward the development of wireless communication, to improve the knowledge of its members by experimental activity, and, perhaps in this way, to render some service in the perfecting of radio apparatus. In this connection, it is a most fortunate circumstance that among those who have sent in their names as being willing to join the club are quite a number with expert knowledge on the subject. This knowledge they are quite prepared to place at the disposal of the members, and under the guidance of such experts, this new organisation should have a most beneficial future. One of the very first duties of the club, when formed, will be to set about securing adequate club premises. A room will necessarily be required where members can not only meet for an exchange of ideas, but where demonstrations, instruction and lectures can be given. Already some of our local firms have become deeply interested in the possibilities which a radio club might have in Hong Kong, and I take this opportunity of appealing to them to render all the assistance they can so that the club may be properly housed and be able to start on a firm basis. With the advice and assistance of sympathisers in the moment, it should be easily possible to procure such quarters. So what was happening around the world in 1928 when the radio station GOW was founded? Here's Radio 3 Head and Newswrap presenter Jim Gould with the international headlines. English bacteriologist Frederick Griffith reports the results of Griffith's experiment indirectly proving the existence of DNA. The 1928 Winter Olympics are held at Saint Moritz in Switzerland, the first as a separate event. Sonja Henny of Norway wins her first gold medal in women's figure skating. The animated short Plain Crazy is released by Disney Studios, featuring the first appearances of Mickey and Minnie Mouse. Australian aviator Charles Kingsford and his crew complete the first flight across the Pacific Ocean from the mainland United States. British inventor John Logie Baird demonstrates the world's first colour television transmission. The first machine-sliced and machine-wrapped loaf of bread is sold in Missouri. In Scotland, May Donoghue finds the remains of a snail in her ginger beer, leading to the landmark negligence case, Donoghue versus Stevenson. Alexander Fleming at St Stephen's Hospital in London accidentally rediscovers the antibiotic penicillin. 
Haile Selassie is crowned king of Abyssinia. And Chiang Kai-shek is named as Generalissimo of the Nationalist Government of the Republic of China. Locally, 1928 was the year that Amoy Food Limited, the makers of Amoy sauce and canned goods, among other products, was set up in Hong Kong. So how would it have been reported in Hong Kong? Well, to be honest, in the early years, much of ZBW's broadcasting was BBC bulletins, and it was intermittent coverage throughout the day, as the freelancers came and went. But for a bit of fun, here's news reporter Joanne Wong doing a vox pop on the streets of Hong Kong, as it might have happened in 1928, to garner reaction on the advent of Amoy sauce in the city. Yes, this is Joanne Wong, and there's been a mixed reaction on the streets of Hong Kong today to the launch of Amoy sauce. Some are enjoying this new addition to their kitchen, including this man I bumped into earlier. Oh yes, it really sparks up my char siu bao, as it were, and adds some oomph to my pickled eggs. The wireless worker Mr. Harry Kumar was less convinced. I prefer Indian spices, cardamom, masalas. And this Thai old housewife was quite incensed. It's all this factory-made stuff. You can't do better than my shrimp paste and fish sauce. None of this modern stuff. This is Xuan Wang for GOW. Towards the end of 1928, the Peninsula Hotel was also opened. Here's Joanne Wong again. This is Joanne Wong at the opening ceremony of the Peninsula Hotel in Shimsha Choi. It's been a grand opening to remember. The luxury hotel situated next to the railway station in Kowloon was due to open in 1924. But the $3 million project has been delayed by the general strike in 1925 and the civil war across the border. Work was also halted to accommodate a large contingent of British troops. But it's been worth the wait. Just the lobby is a mix of gold paint and super plush furniture, which would make a great backdrop for the silent movie industry. Later tonight... Hong Kong's rich and famous will be attending a carnival dinner dance, which will be held in the Roof Garden Ballroom. This is Joanne Wong for GOW. So that's the news side, now on to the music. While admittedly Hong Kong would lag months behind the latest music or fashion trends in London or America, let's see what would have been on the hit parade in the 1920s. To find out, I joined Colin Aitchison, the presenter of Radio 3's Vintage Chart Toppers. This record is unique in that it features a distinctly new syncopated rhythm all the charts. <laughs> a great record collection that you use for vintage chart toppers so um, tell me about them they're, they're quite small when I've seen them in the, in the packets but that would have been what they had in the 1920s yes they would have had certainly in Hong Kong in the 1920s with expats some of them would have certainly brought their own records in portable gramophone maybe wind you up type you know or uh, they would have come over 
maybe by ship. And a, a lot of the records in those days, certainly in Hong Kong, would have been British dance bands like the Savoy Havana Band, the Savoy Orpheans from the Savoy Hotel London. And it would be the popular songs of the day, you know. There'd be sort of foxtrots. Waltzes were very big. And of course in the 20s, it was the jazz age. So they'd have the Charleston... maybe you know it was quite an interesting period because it was the era also of art deco so certainly uh, I know the Peninsula Hotel opened in 1928 and I know it's RTHK's 90th birthday so yes it would have been quite an interesting year so many things happening in Hong Kong at that time if we go to June 1928 or thereabouts, what would the chart toppers have been at that time? Well, we would have had certainly recordings by those bands of the 20s and artists of the 20s, not just British. There'd be bands like Paul Whiteman with the legendary Big Spiderbeck, probably. Of course, in 1928, Louis Armstrong was at his peak then, basically. from the British bands, which would be very popular, you'd have also a certain element of American records coming over. Of course, the music in Hong Kong then probably played for the expats at the hotels or whatever. What I, like I say, would be waltzes, foxtrots, tangos. Tango was big. <laughs> the string quartet or the strings doing light classics while they have their afternoon tea at the Repulse Bay Hotel. So it wasn't just all Charleston's and that type of thing. I mean, you've got to remember a lot of popular songs in those days. It had to be you or hits today. And those were songs that were recorded in the 1920s. (laughs) 
couple of the singers as well, as you say, Ooh, who would have been like, well, there were so many. But... Well, yeah, because you had your your more commercial singers. You could see the pop artists of the day: Al Jolson, Rudy Valley, Bing Crosby. He was around then, even you know, he was big then. And of course, in the UK, you had Ray Noble and also with a vocalist who was big in the thirties and forties, Al Bowley. They're all, all around playing all these wonderful songs at that time in the 20s, you know. And uh, really, it was the 1920s that got them. They were big then, but they even got bigger in the 30s and in the 40s. And a lot of them remained stars until the 70s. So what was Al Jolson singing about? Well, Al Jolson was uh, singing, When April showers do come your way They bring me flowers that bloom in May He was huge. So no doubt his voice would have been heard around Hong Kong then. You've got to remember, certainly as a colony then, it would certainly, with the expats, be mainly imported music. With the local community, of course, it would have been more Cantonese, Peking opera, very local. Of course, the rich Chinese customers did dress up and dance foxtrots. A lot of it came down from Shanghai. Shanghai then was the place. So many ballrooms, the Metropole and all this sort of thing, where they had overseas bands, a lot of them in then. And uh, not just the Westerners, but the local businessmen, the Chinese, also were there dancing at the Peace Hotel, which was called the Cathy Hotel then. This sort of thing. And, of course, it drifted down into Hong Kong, also Singapore, where there was the, the Chinese communities, the business people, the traders, all that. Like this, like Raffles in Singapore, similar peninsula, Hong Kong, Raffles, Singapore, and the Cathay Hotel in Shanghai. Wherever there was, you could see a British colony or concession then. There was lots, you know. Certainly Rudy Valley was big then. Well, Rudy Valley actually also recorded As Time Goes By, which again today is still played. When we got to 1929 and 30, he had the Great Depression in the States. And one of his big songs was Brother Can You Spare a Dime? This is Rudy Valley again, stepping perhaps a bit out of character in singing a song from Americana. A song that has taken its audiences by storm, which may be explained by its theme, which is both poignant and different. Brother, can you spare a dime? Tell me I was building a dream And so I followed the mob When there was earth to plow or guns to bear I was always there, right on the job They used to tell me I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for bread and Rudy Valley went on to make movies into the 1970s. Wow. So they were everlasting, you know. Although when he played in London and he was part of, the, I think it was a Savoy Havana band, what they did say was, Rudy, stick to the saxophone, don't sing. And yet he became one of the biggest vocalists because the ladies in those days, remember, no electric microphones at times in the 20s. They had a megaphone. And the ladies used to love to look. They used to fight for the front seat and watch his lips moving through the megaphone. 
In the early 20s, it was acoustic recording. They had a big horn in the studio. And the position, the musicians depend on the instruments around that big horn. And the big horn was also the cutting machine, right? 1928... So uh, cutting machine for the record? Yep. So they did things, one or two takes, that would be it. In 1928, it would have been then electrical recordings. So then they had microphones. But for live sometimes, on the band stage, yeah, they were getting to microphones, but certain dancers, they still used a megaphone. Oliver Chow, I know you from uh, South China Morning Post days, but um, here we're sitting at Hong Kong U Space. Yes, I'm now a program director here looking after all the arts and culture courses. I'm glad to share with you this new book of mine that uh, covers Hong Kong's music culture from the 30s to the 50s. So it covers the early days of the ZBW radio station, which uh, was launched in 1928. And during my research, I came across many, many uh, old newspaper clippings. And there are quite a number of them that involved the radio surface. And at this, there were uh, many clippings on the daily programs. And uh, the programs are quite interesting. Aside from the overseas radio services, there was also local production, especially in the evening. But because of the really young days at that time, there were a lot of explorations and testing and all that. There was one interesting testing when a team of engineers, they wanted to test the volume or the reception of sound at the Queen's Theatre. Well, by Queen's Theatre, it wasn't just a place for movies. It was also a performing venue. Yasha Heifers, the great violinist, performed at the Queen's Theatre in 1931. It was in those days that the young radio engineers would go to the theatre and test out how much they could record the sound of a band, a 15-person band. The reason for that is because, don't forget, the 1930s were still the years of silent movies. The theatres and cinemas in those days, there was always a pit for a live band or a small orchestra there to perform music alongside with the silent movies. And that's how life was at that time. So the engineers, they would go to Queen's Theatre and they could find no band there. So they would have to hire the military band. You know, there are, there are many at that time. So they would group together a band of 15 musicians and they play music in order for the testing. And so this testing was being carried out by ZBW technicians? Yes. I don't know the result of the testing, but they did the test after all. In my research, I also noticed in 1928 when ZBW was founded, there was an opening concert and one of the musicians was John Braga. Well, the violinist John Braga actually is from the Braga family. And when we look at the map in Hong Kong these days, there was a very interesting exclusive area in Mong Kok at Skadori Hill. And there was a Braga circuit there, and there was part of the Braga family. And John Braga was a violinist, and his sister, Carolyn Braga, was a pianist. And they also had a brother by the name Tony Braga. 
Tony Brugger actually was a major culture person in Hong Kong. He founded the Sino-British Society after the war. And it was that society that slowly evolved to be what it is now the Hong Kong Philharmonic Orchestra. So Tony Brugger and the Brugger family was very important uh, in the early years. In 1928, when the radio station was launched, it was John Brugger who performed the violin at that launch ceremony. And as I mentioned, there were many radio schedules or calendars printed in the newspaper in those days. It was great publicity for readers to look up what is available on air that day. And there were many names, composers, performers. And uh, it was such an early, early day that sometimes I couldn't figure out what those names actually were. <laughs> uh, I'll give you one example. In 1931, there was one clipping that has a list of radio programs on that day. And there was a performer by the name Horowitz. And we all know who Horowitz is, Vladimir Horowitz, the great pianist. But not in those days. Horowitz, bracket, soprano. <laughs> That's what it was printed. And, he, and that soprano was playing list on that radio tick. Oliver Chow there, Programme Director for Hong Kong Youth Space. The Hong Kong Telegraph, April 10th, 1933. ZBW Broadcasts, Chinese and European programmes. An important announcement materially affecting the future of broadcasting in Hong Kong was made by the Postmaster General, Mr B.J. Breen, in an interview on Saturday. Unostentatiously, the local broadcasting authorities have been working on the scheme to provide separate programmes for European and Chinese listeners, and within the next six months it will be brought into effect. The ZBW transmitter, which at present is housed in a temporary quarters at Kowloon, will be removed to its permanent quarters near the Kowloon Football Club grounds, next to the new offices of the Xingmun Dam Commission. The new station building is almost completed, and the masts will be erected within a few weeks. In order to provide continuous programmes while the scheme is being put into effect, the old quarter kilowatt transmitter, which served as the main ZBW transmitter from the peak until the two-kilowatt transmitter was installed 12 months ago, will be utilised to provide both European and Chinese programs. The old transmitter, which has been thoroughly overhauled and readjusted, is now being installed in new quarters as soon as the work is completed will take over the present ZBW programs. In 1934, ZEW, the Chinese language service, was set up and the two stations, ZBW and ZEW, were joined together in 1948 to form Radio Hong Kong. But before that, the world would go to war. I don't remember hearing anything on um, on the radio about that at all. Um, it was just that the air raid sirens went, so we, we found that the Japanese were coming over to us, bombing us. That was just the beginning, early in the morning. It was, of course, prohibited to have a have a radio set, but some did manage to get in, and the one which got into Stanley Camp came in by a very unusual means. Right throughout the war, we had nothing else to do because there's no other entertainment. So we had to turn into Radio Villa Verde. In 
In December 1941, ZBW and ZEW would go off the air as the occupying Japanese forces took over Hong Kong's media. In the next part of this special series, I'll be looking at radio here during the Japanese occupation. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.